Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, this is the place to find broken and beautiful companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Here, you'll find embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and different cultures. They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners, just like you and me. Today, I'm here to tell you the story of Søren Kierkegaard with the wonderful religion and culture writer, Jonathan Merritt. I'm happy you're here with us. Many of us know Søren Kierkegaard as an innovative philosopher, but back in his hometown of Copenhagen, everyone knew him as a man about town. Everybody recognized Søren, the spindly, comical figure whose tousled hair stuck six inches up above his forehead. Every day he rambled for hours through the city streets, stopping to chat with random folks along the way, always amusing and witty. Nobody guessed that behind the familiar figure with top hat and walking cane, there was a melancholy guy trying to solve the deep riddle of life. Surin always kept his true feelings concealed. Even as an outwardly cheerful boy, he played a pitiful game to keep everyone from guessing how secretly unhappy he really was. It was no picnic to be the youngest of Michael Kierkegaard's seven children. The haunted, pietistic father was convinced that the family was cursed. He took his kids on treks to the cemetery to dwell on the agonies of Christ and asked the little kids to meditate on their own horrific sins. No wonder young Surin was filled with dread. The teenage Surin was both repelled by and attracted to his father's fierce religion. He wrestled with faith as a student at the University of Copenhagen. And as he began thinking more and more for himself, he rejected the weighty old orthodox dogma of Christianity, and he looked to philosophy for answers. Kierkegaard was plagued by the problem of purpose. He sought to know truth, a truth that was true for him. He wanted to find the idea for which he could live and die. In his journal, he writes, What I really lack is to be clear in my mind what I am to do, not what I am to know. Surin kept asking questions, but his melancholy deepened as philosophy failed to bear the weight of his personal quest for meaning. Surin just couldn't shake his suspicion that beyond abstract religious dogma, which he had rejected, there was, in fact, a divine reality, that there was a real Jesus who would demand a commitment. Still, Søren resisted, so troubled by his childhood experiences. He says that he was determined to try everything else before he would become what he called seriously a Christian. 
Then Surin had a powerful spiritual experience. He was overcome by a feeling of indescribable joy, a feeling that was inexplicable to his rational mind. He sensed at last that he was a person found by God. This was the central truth that he'd been seeking all along. But Surin sure didn't want to be like the bored religious folks around him or adopt the thoughtless religion peddled by the Danish state church that counted all citizens as automatic Christians from birth. He refused to be just a Christian, as if Christian was some assigned permanent label. No, this young man who had long examined belief from an intellectual distance, who'd been standing outside it, now threw himself into an inward, ardent Christianity. He saw an individual relationship with God as a radical choice. Surin embraced faith as a passion, a leap to live life in its fullest sense. Kierkegaard is not called the father of existentialism for nothing. And for you and for me, for those of us who want to wake up to the risky joy of authentic faith, anguished, struggling Surin shows us the path into unreserved living, mind, body, and soul. He tells us to take all of our lives to become a Christian, to choose again and again with each new day, to be a real self, an authentic person in relation to God, to abandon our calculated safety, to take a reckless, wholehearted life of faith in Christ, to continue to become, to grow, to take that radical leap of faith right now. Surin's own inner transformation was kindled by the practice of daily prayer, which became as essential to him as breathing. He recorded his prayer in a private journal, which you and I can read now. He writes, The best help in all action is to pray. That is true genius. Then one never goes wrong. In his prayers, Surin speaks frankly to God of his intellectual questions, as well as his confidence. He prays his doubts, his joys, his pains, and his suffering. He talks to God of his love, his longing, his depression. It's all there. Finally, he arrives at gratitude, and Surin offers a prayer of thanks to God for doing so much more than he could have ever expected. He writes, It is wonderful how God's love overwhelms me. Soul brother Surin, so traumatized by his father's fearful fundamentalist religion, was once found by a great divine love now he urges you and me to go with him, to go deeper, to fling ourselves into God's presence, and to know the one good, unshakable thing in life. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is the audio companion to my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. To learn more, come on by my website karenwrightmarsh.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and invite your friends to join us. Now, to talk about Surin Kierkegaard with Jonathan Merritt.
Well, joining me to talk more about Søren Kierkegaard is my friend Jonathan Merritt. I follow Jonathan on at The Atlantic, across the spectrum from The New York Times and The Washington Post to Christianity Today. He definitely keeps me up to speed on what I need to know on religion and culture and politics. So thank you, Jonathan, for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be with you as always. So Søren Kierkegaard has been called the ultimate anti-Christianity Christian. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean to you? There was a passage, I believe, that that you quoted about how once he was converted, that he wanted to bear witness to Christ, but not in the way that the church, the institutional church did. And so uh, that that would be where my mind would go initially, is that is that he sort of existed outside of the traditional path. Yeah. In Denmark at that time, when a child was baptized, that was how they became a citizen, was through Christian baptism. Mm-hmm. So just Christianity was everywhere. So what would you say is his idea of Christianity? What, how might he describe, or how might you describe, for that matter, Jonathan, what true Christianity is? Mm-hmm. I think that as I've read about his, his sort of Christian journey, it is that it's just that. It's a journey. Mm-hmm. I, I love that that it wasn't just about being a Christian. It was about becoming uh, a Christian, which I guess is probably what you would you would expect from the the father of existentialism. Is that there was that it was about the process of Christian identity, and uh, that resonates with me. Because, uh, you know, the, I, I guess I could point to a time where I said, okay, before this, I wasn't a Christian. And after this, I was. But my experience also kind of challenges that way of talking about my faith. Instead, I feel like a Christian is something I've always been becoming. I became a Christian. I'm becoming a Christian. I will become a Christian. And, and every new phase of faith for me is a little bit different than the phase before it. And that seems to sort of align with the way that that Soren Kierkegaard talks about what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. And he talks about choosing again and choosing and choosing. And as you were talking, I was thinking about Jesus's words. He says, follow me. Hmm. And that doesn't sound like a one-time thing. If we follow anything or follow anyone, it is this word journey that you use or pilgrimage or choice to continue following in the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I found it interesting too, by the way, that just the way that you decided to enter into his life for, for a philosopher was through prayer. And it's now it sent me down a whole rabbit hole. I'm learning all kinds of things about him as a result of this. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting because when you think about philosophers, I think about the mind. I don't think about practice. I don't think about prayer. I don't think about the contemplative. I, I don't think about these sorts of things. And yet, uh, that was something that was so central to his experience of Christianity. That really took me off guard. Yeah, I, that surprised me too. And and I found his book of prayers 
and they were so personal. That was really the first time I'd read any Kierkegaard. I was a philosophy major in college and had read Fear and Trembling and some other very, to me, difficult work where I could read Kierkegaard and I really felt connected and I really felt like I understood what his words were about. There's a quote from him that that is just coming up for me right now where he prays and says, teach me, O God, not to torture myself, not to make a martyr out of myself through stifling reflection, hmm. but rather teach me to breathe deeply in faith. And I just find that so touching that you, you hear the voice of this poor guy who is in his head all the time, torturing himself with reflection. And prayer is a way of jumping over that abyss. And he's breathing a relationship with God through prayer rather than trying to work it out, work it out, work it out you know, within his own mm. mind. Um, let's talk about Surin's childhood. Wow. <laughs> What a dad he had. Um, so Michael Kierkegaard told his kids that he thought each of them would die by the age of 33. Oh, I could not believe that when I read that in your book. Whoa. Yeah, I know. So this poor kid um, who's been dragged through the cemetery is so traumatized by his childhood religion and the guilt and the dread that came up. I mean, we see prayer as being healing but what else do you see in his life or in his thinking that you think helped him get through that? Um, there was a there was an interesting article uh, I had read, and I can't even remember where I found it. But sort of that that Kierkegaard, as he prayed, was talking about how he would become more attentive and more inward, and over time would say less and less and instead uh, would be silent and in being silent would wait until he would hear from god and so for him that prayer was not just the process of listening to oneself but was the process of listening for god or it, at least that was the way his prayer became over time and that to me is very healing because when god shows up god speaks love and love is the thing that heals uh, the wounds uh, that we sustain in childhood. And I know for me, you know, I had, a, I had a very difficult childhood. I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a happy childhood, but there was a lot of trauma I experienced growing up. And for me, the contemplative has healed me. You know, just mm -hmm. sitting around and crying out to God, that can help, I think, up to a point. And then you need God to show up and speak a word of love to you. And that to me has healed me. And it seems, it seems that that was one of the healing mechanisms in, in Kierkegaard's life. Yes. Yeah, that's so helpful. I find it interesting that for Soren Kierkegaard, all of his intellectual work didn't get him into a place of healing faith. It had to be a physical, spiritual, emotional moment that he received from from God, like you said, God showed up in his life. He talks about this, um, the idea that if Jesus was going to reach him, he'd have to come through locked doors, just like the disciples were locked up after the crucifixion. They were so afraid. They were so traumatized that he himself was in a locked room and God, Jesus had to come through that door and find his own way into Soren. So I find that to be very encouraging, I think, for people who feel that they can't reach out, they can't get out 
of their doubts or their fear of religion or faith. This idea that Jesus comes through, even through a locked door, to seek us out and to speak love, mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. We've, we're, we, we've, we've grown up in an age where conversion is often presented as a, a logical or rational experience. Uh, for me, conversion always has a, an element of emotion to it an element of experience to it. Now, it's curious, I think, obviously, when we're talking about Soren Kierkegaard, that that was true for him as well. But it certainly has been true for me and for for many people that I know who've had uh, conversion experience that transcend uh, rationality. Mm -hmm. Even in his prayers that are so personal, you still see him working out his questions, you know, and his intellectual work is happening right there in front of your eyes as he's praying. But, you know, if we go back to this idea of becoming a Christian, choosing over and over, maybe some days it's emotional, some days it's it's logical, some days it's a word, some days it's a, a poem or an image of beauty or something, a conversation in a relationship. If we believe that God reaches us in, in every kind of way, then seems like there are infinite ways of experiencing God's presence in our lives. Mm-hmm. Well, Soren Kierkegaard was obsessed with his purpose. You know, he was so about finding his one truth that was true for him that he could live and die for. Jonathan, do you think that it's possible to find our one true purpose? Is that a real thing? Uh, I really, I struggle with this uh, question to be honest, because on the one hand, I've experienced uh, what I can only describe as a sense of purpose, uh, calling, meaning, vocation, etc. And yet, I also realize that to even say that, uh, it's a statement, really a statement of privilege. I mean, if you go, if you think about most people throughout human history, the question, what is your purpose in life, seems ridiculous. It's like, what do you mean, what's my purpose in life? I was born a bean farmer. I farm beans. This is sort of a uniquely modern question. Uh, but then I also, I also would say on the other side of that, I speak of purpose because it's something that I've experienced in my own life. I believe I have been put on earth for a particular purpose, and that's not the same purpose may not be the same purpose as the next person. And so I find myself really feeling a tension with that question. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, our purposes change, that there are different seasons mm-hmm. of commitment. Yeah. Farming beans, you know, changing diapers or, you know, working two shifts to feed the family. I think if we can broaden our sense of purpose to give respect and credit for keeping ourselves alive in this world and providing for the ones we love. It helps us get out of our heads a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd, be, I'd be curious to know, Karen, if you, could, if you could describe it in this phase of your life. What, what do you think your purpose is? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I just had this thought, and I don't know quite what it means, that my purpose is to listen right now. And that's not very specific, but I do feel like I'm in a lot of situations where I'm with people 
who need to be heard. So that's one aspect of listening. Another purpose would be listening to my own life, you know, maybe taking some time to be brave enough to listen to what, what might be next. That's a very abstract answer, but it's, it's what's coming up for me right now. But I think every day when, when I talk with students or young adults about finding your vocation, finding your purpose, what I tell them, I mean, my advice to them is probably should be my advice to myself is that, you know, when we are faithful every day to what is before us in that day, in this day now, then we will be finding mm-hmm. our purpose. We'll be living our mm-hmm. purpose. Purpose finds us. But in the meantime, thank you so much for talking about uh, this wonderful philosopher, prayer, tortured, comic, walking, uh, whimsical Søren Kierkegaard. Oh, yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Poor Søren Kierkegaard. So emotional, so tormented, so heady. I love talking with Jonathan Merritt about this angsty philosopher, because honestly, he's a lot like many people I know and love. Surin is struggling, but he takes his life seriously. He earnestly wants to find his true purpose, his passion. He wants to discover what God wants for his life, and I appreciate his intensity. Kierkegaard reminds me that answers are found in prayer, in daily conversation with God. And he reminds me to get out into the fresh air and take a long walk. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and I'm the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Theological Horizons. Come by my website, KarenWrightMarsh.com. You'll find out more about the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast, get show notes, and learn about my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. You can download free printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons. I hope you'll support the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast with a tax-deductible gift to Theological Horizons. Go to theologicalhorizons.org slash giving or donate on Venmo at theological-horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections. <laughs>